Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to another episode of the IC Interviews podcast. I'm Dan Jones, Deputy Editor of Investors Chronicle. And today I'm joined by Ben Peters and Chris Elliott of Evenload Investment. Ben is the co-founder of equity specialist Evenload, which launched in 2009. He's co-manager of the firm's Evenload Income Fund, which focuses on UK dividend stocks, and is lead manager on the Evenload Global Income Fund. Chris is also a manager on Evenload Global Income, which is now five years old. We're going to be talking about uh, the funds today, the stocks they hold, and uh, Ben and Chris's experience of a pretty tricky year for all investors. Ben and Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dan. How, how is life in Shipping Norton? Um, life's very good, thank you. Yes, uh, yeah, the, the usual sort of winter sniffles are coming along, but uh, other, otherwise fine, thank you. We're persevering, excellent. Uh, well, let's let's get into it. As I say, it has been a, a tricky year uh, for investors for any number of reasons. Uh, income investors, though, perhaps have had it a little uh, better than others. Um, how have you found this year dealing with this world we're in of higher inflation, higher interest rates? Uh, and specifically, as, as a starting question, has this year changed your thinking in terms of how you construct portfolios, how you look for investments, things like that? Or is it just a question of applying your process and looking to the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in short, it's it's the latter. But clearly, it's been a very a very interesting year for for all sorts of uh, reasons, uh, macroeconomically, geopolitically, and from and from the corporate operations uh, point of view. But as even though investment, you know, we have a have a particular way of investing. We look at uh, look for particular qualities in companies, and and in short, we look, we're looking for companies that are asset light, they're cash generative. Uh, they've got good competitive positions, and we do look to invest in them for the for the long term. So, whilst we do evolve the portfolios through time uh, to reflect the changing valuation environment, um, and sometimes when things change at companies as well, we are fundamentally long term investors, and so we set set the portfolios up to deal with a broad range of uh, economic situations. And uh, and this year is is but one. We've just come out of the back of two years of coronavirus pandemic, uh, and the, and the and the lockdowns there. Um, and you know, there, there's always something going on. It's bit, uh, but it's fair to say there's there's a lot of macro about at the moment. And looking at the construction of the portfolios, let's let's start with um, UK stocks, which, which are held obviously in, in even at income, but also in global income as well. You know, you, you're you're looking for real dividend growth. You're looking for companies with high returns on capital and strong free cash flow. The UK obviously is a, is a tricky market for you know investors. Uh, a lot of our listeners will be predominantly invested in the UK for obvious reasons in specific stocks. You've got a decent uh, chunk of your global income portfolio in the UK still. Are you finding more opportunities there now, or maybe you were finding more opportunities at the start of the year? And obviously, UK large caps have had, relatively speaking, a good year, and that's kind of the pool in which you're fishing. Well, what's yeah. your take on the UK from a global? perspective as dividend investors yeah absolutely i mean we're we're being global investors we're, we're relatively agnostic as to where companies are listed uh we do have a valuation discipline and we we, we look to invest in companies when they are good value and, and, and the, the reflection uh, in, in the portfolio of uk listed businesses reflects there is some good value to be found uh in the uk market uh we do have also have a sort of overweight to european markets as well where we do see some relatively better value and actually, a trend for the portfolio over the last five years has been to uh, slowly, and we always make uh, changes incrementally unless there's some real good reason to do otherwise, 
um, uh, through time we've we've gradually reduced our our weight into the US, and that's not a sort of a geographic asset allocation call, but on a company by company basis, that's a reflection of where we see relatively better value. And if you look at some of the larger holdings in in the portfolio, you'll see Unilever uh, towards the top. Uh, of, of the um, uh, of the portfolio in terms of the weighting, uh, and that's just that's just a reflection of the relative valuation that we see. But when it comes to dividends and dividend growth, I think the UK has been traditionally viewed as a as a sort of income led market. Um, sometimes that's equated with yield. Uh, you know, for us, and as you say, we're we're very much focused on the potential for companies to grow their dividend through time, which is why we look for these uh, asset like businesses. Uh, so we're looking for those companies. Uh, they don't necessarily have the highest yield, but clearly we would like some yield. But the, where there's a there's an ability to to grow, and you can certainly find those across uh, different different sectors, even in the UK market, which is a smaller market these days. But you know, our most recent addition to the portfolio is the credit referencing agency uh, Experian, which happens to be UK listed. But actually, its main business is is in the US. So uh, we're we're much more interested generally in where those companies do business rather than quite where the listing is. Yeah, I mean, sure. exactly to, to that point, if you look at the UK companies in the portfolio, they are very much on the large cap side. So it's, it's really about where they generate their revenues, and that's very international. So Unilever generates over half of its revenues in the Southeast Asia. Relex generates a large portion of its revenues out in America. So these are multinational businesses. And yes, there's a short term benefit from the currency uh, depreciation, which we've seen over the last year or so. Uh, but we don't rely on currency for long-term growth uh we're going to look at the underlying uh businesses and their competitive advantages sure Let, let's talk about unilever a bit more as we, we get into um some stock specifics or rather sector specifics because uh we as it happens are writing uh, on consumer staples probably around the time this podcast will be published and, and in global income you mentioned unilever uh wreck it procter and gamble to, you know, look at the US equivalent, perhaps uh, is in there too. Nestle, you know, you've got a, a good selection of consumer staples there. Looking at their relative merits, is that something you do? You know, you hold them all clearly. You see them all as having particular particular value. Um, but what, what's the attraction, first of all, of the sector, and and then maybe if we can start talking about some of the relative merits of each individual company. I think that as as a sector, I'm looking at the branded consumer goods sector. Uh, if you think back to those qualities that that, that we like. Uh, you, you find them there. So um, if you look at the cash generating ability of these companies, uh, it's very good and it's been proven to be very good through thick and thin over not just many years, but many decades. I mean, we've been managing the global income portfolio now for even a global income portfolio for five years, which is, I guess, a relatively long period of time in one sense. But economic cycles happen over much, much longer timeframes than that. And these companies have been operating for you know, uh, for hundreds of years in in, in the case of uh, of P and G and um, and Unilever, so um, uh, they they have been proven to be able to um, respond to the economic environment through time, generate attractive cash flows, and really importantly, reinvest in their businesses and evolve their businesses through time. Because you know, the the, the Unilever and the Procter and Gamble of today is quite different to the Procter and Gamble and Unilever of yesteryear, and actually even in the recent past. Yeah, I mean, just to add, add to that, uh, what's been remarkable with the consumer branded goods companies so far this year is their ability to pass price through. And this comes back to the point Ben was making to a degree about the brand strength that they have. If you look at companies like Pepsi, they've been passing sort of mid-teens price increases through, which certainly something you wouldn't have imagined a couple of years ago when we were all talking about sort of deflationary pressures, particularly in Europe. Um, 
now there are obviously difficult times coming up uh, you look at the amount of money available to consumers it's, it's going to be it's going to be tricky but we really believe that the businesses with high quality brands where it's a highly differentiated product so your pepsis or your coca-colas um should be able to maintain that pricing power for a significant period yeah i was going to discuss that as, as you say uh you know some of the past through rates have been have been very high very strong in terms of being able to pass those costs on you look at the analyst community obviously and they're constantly fretting about you know the the next shoe to drop q3 results were nonetheless quite good for all these companies procter and gamble unilever Reckitt. and yet you know there's always a suspicion that the the feared from the perspective of shareholders in these companies the feared shift to private labels could be coming through as cost of living pressures bite uh how do you sort of assess these companies from on that basis obviously they all talk a good game but i think even even now you know management are still quite insistent they're not really seeing that much substitution which is quite surprising when you you know you compare the the price of a, a jar of hellman's mayonnaise versus a supermarket owned brand and things like that i mean is it just a case of waiting to see what happens or are there things you can do to look at how that that might play out in the months ahead yeah, I mean, certainly you want to keep monitoring the amount of marketing, particularly marketing to sales for these companies. You want them to keep investing, for, even through sort of tough times. It, it is interesting because an inflationary environment isn't necessarily always great for private label. If you think about the proportion of the, the costs to the price ratio for each of these products, for a private label, generally, there isn't a lot of room to uh, absorb increases in costs. So as you get the increase in costs, the price has to increase. Whereas with premium products with high gross margins, generally you can absorb the cost with a smaller increase. And Unilever specifically, obviously there's been a lot of talk this year on various issues, uh, whether it be its ESG approach, obviously the, the bid for what is now Halion. Uh, you know, it started the year in quite a, a difficult position with shareholders, but the operational performance, as we say, has been quite good. It's now got a sort of a restructure of its um, organization in terms of the way it's discloses performance things like that uh, at the same time you know we might have a new chief exec next year as well what's your view of the company kind of structurally operationally do you think some of those criticisms at the start of the year were you know it, it's kind of showing that it is actually in a good place now or do you think some of those were, were justified yeah i think um uh certainly when it comes to that the Haley old bid um we were not supportive of that and i'm I, we're, we're pleased that the, the shareholders and it wasn't just us were, were listened to and um uh, and I think that that's now water under the bridge. I think that the long-term picture for, for Unilever is good. I mean, it's had its operational challenges, but it's um, much simplified now that it's got rid of the dual-headed structure that it had with uh, being part headquartered in the Netherlands and part in the UK, uh, and is able to evolve its portfolio. And it has been doing por uh, portfolio actions uh, that, that, that do seem sensible for the long-term of the business. And I can draw a parallel, actually, with Procter & Gamble, uh, Procter and Gamble, if you go back five or six years, had a, had quite a similar problem. It did need to um, uh, rationalise its portfolio. It disposed of a, a number of its uh, sort of tail uh, brands to a business called uh, Coty. Um, and at the time, there were uh, there was a lot of commentary, which is quite similar to the commentary we're hearing about about Unilever in terms of uh, you know is it is it able to you know grow and prosper into the future? And you look at what's happened to Procter and Gamble since then; it's certainly been able to now. You know, the, the past for a different company is no guarantee of the future for, for Unilever, of course. Um, but we do think that they're, they're taking uh, sensible strategic actions. And, and the long-term picture with, as Chris said, you know, some, some very strong emerging market presence where, yes, emerging markets can be volatile, but they certainly are growth markets. 
over time. Uh, you know that that is uh, that sets it up in a pretty reasonably good place, I think. Do you think they're investing enough in their business? That has been a criticism of Unilever in the past. Uh, Chris mentioned, you know, looking at things like marketing to sales, R and D to sales as well. Obviously, you know, they still lag the likes of Procter and Gamble on on those metrics a little bit. Do you, do you think they recognise that they need to do more there? Do they need to do more there? Yeah, I think that that we we have spoken to the company in, in detail about this, and also very importantly, you know, as, as you say, the company can always talk a good game. We we do speak to experts in the industry independently from the from the company as well. When it comes to things like uh, marketing and sales, there is no magic number, but we can monitor spend in absolute terms relative to sales through time uh, to to get a sense of whether we feel like there's a, there's a significant risk to the business of underinvestment, and, and we feel uh, we feel as much, as far as it's possible to tell that the picture is okay at the current time. Sure. The final point on staples in general before we uh, spread it out a little bit more is um, next year, you know, food price inflation is still rampant, frankly. You know, the the companies are saying there's still a decent amount to come in the first half of next year as well in terms of price growth and the need to pass that on. At the same time, we are seeing right now, you know, some commodity prices potentially peaking, which could be could provide a, a tailwind for margins next year. Is that is that something you expect to come through relatively rapidly, or is it too hard to say still at this stage? Yeah, I think um, uh, what we are starting to see um, is is some light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the input cost inflation pressure that companies have seen, consumer goods companies in particular, but by no means just consumer goods companies. Um, and we are starting to see here comment that that the companies do buy their their inputs forward by some months, um, in some cases years, but uh, so it takes time for these these movements to feed through into the margin structure of businesses. So we are hearing tentative signs that yes, those those input cost inflation pressures are easing, and also other other things like um, supply chain difficulties. Um, you know, a lot of uh, I think input cost inflation has come from people paying up to secure supply as much as the sort of um, price market price of agricultural commodities say so with 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 transportation costs coming down supply chains easing a bit um uh, and the headline and, and the sort of headline rates of um, uh, price increase in in commodities ameliorating you know, that that does paint a slightly more benign picture from that point of view uh, at least so we'll see how it how it, how it pans out and it's very much light at the end of the tunnel rather than uh, rather than being here here and now, but uh, it does seem to be easing a bit. Yeah, I just just as a sort of caveat, uh, slightly. The, the only thing we are seeing is increased wage inflation. So, that, as, as Ben said at the beginning, there's always something. Um, but, but these are businesses that are very good at, at managing their cost base, and as we said, can pass price through to customers. Let's talk now about uh, a different kind of company, the the largest holding in the global income fund uh, at the last disclosed. Position at the end of August, I mean, the end of October, rather, is Microsoft. Now, obviously, the consumer staples are, you know, compounders, slow, steady growth. Microsoft, while being a well-established business, has been seeing significant growth, particularly in, in cloud computing um, It's as your service. Uh, yet, at the same time, you know, it, it is a tech company. Tech companies have obviously struggled a bit this year, and we have started to see uh, signs of a slowdown in that growth. It sounds silly to say that when, you know, I think in the third quarter results, as you were still growing at 33% year on year, but that was two percentage points lower than analysts thought. So, you know, there's a little bit of uh, um, wariness there. And Microsoft has said that that growth is starting to come back a little bit. 
how do you see that as your your biggest company? Are you happy with the performance this year? Are you wary of what might be coming down the line? You know, we are going through uh, obviously a, a difficult time economically, and even in the US, looking like things might get a little bit more difficult. Are you wary about that that cloud story and the such high expectations there and the need to constantly meet them? How do you view the company? Uh, yeah, sure. That's one. Um, yeah, so for Microsoft, um, yeah, cloud and Azure has become an increasingly big part of the business. Um, I mean, to be still growing at 33% is incredible. And this, at the scale that it currently is, that, that sort of rate of growth has always got a limited amount of lifespan. It, you just can't be an elephant and run fast. Um, but uh, to be honest, that said, the projections all the way up to 2030 are very good. And the short term disruption that we're seeing in cloud is generally about businesses using cloud more efficiently and effectively, particularly in scaling their usage. Uh, and this is very sensible for Microsoft because it frees up additional capacity to increase sales to new customers. The fund's biggest position, it wasn't at the start of the year. And actually the, the relative uh, performance of, of Microsoft, which has been weak this year, along with a, a lot of the other um, uh, technology names very famously uh has actually meant that we built we have built back into the position having been reducing it through 2021 where where the share price had been very strong and this is this is our valuation discipline in action actually so we do as i said evolve the portfolio through time we call it the portfolio nudge then this is matching up our our fundamental belief that being long-term investors in businesses is usually the right thing to do provided you've selected the right businesses uh, under our strategy um but, uh, but 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 things do change in the market, and you know even the best business can be the wrong investment at the wrong price. So we do evolve the portfolios through time, and, and Microsoft is a, is a good example where we have been reducing the position because it had been relatively very strong. The um, the relative valuation was was okay, but it wasn't certainly wasn't as appealing as it, as it had been sort of a couple of years ago. And now that has reversed, and and we're very happy to to move with the market if that's what if that's where the market market goes. So uh, so yeah, I think that that the market is. Does have some concerns about the broader technology sector, as you say, there are some there are some things about Microsoft. But I think that you know Microsoft is a company that is extremely profitable. Um, it's extremely cash generative. It can use that cash to reinvest in itself, um, which is great, um, and and fend off the competition. It's likely to come, become essentially a, a duopoly with a, uh, with Amazon Web Services in the, in the world of cloud computing. Um, and that's that's not a bad place to be for the long term. So yes, there may be some some shorter term um, uh, shorter term uh, wobbles in the growth rate, but the growth, as, as Chris said, over a, over certainly the medium term, that's pretty pretty good. You mentioned uh, um, Amazon there, and obviously when it comes to cloud, the big three: Microsoft, Amazon, Google. But your investment case for Microsoft, I presume, it is based on. You know the, the fact that it has a strong position in any number of of, of sectors, not just cloud. I mean, is that the reason you hold it so, or certainly hold it a larger position than the likes of Google and Amazon? Obviously, they too have many strings to their bow, but there must be something about Microsoft that has particularly got you you interested. The, the cash generation, as you say, as well, must be crucial from your point of view. And the yeah, I, I, absolutely. And and I think you're right that um, it does have these other other um, segments. You know, Windows. Xbox, etc., where um, where they are in and of their own right, good cash generative businesses. But the Windows business is not going to be as fast growth as the Azure business. You know that's it's it's uh, it's a very mature part of its portfolio, although it has been growing still. But I think that's, that's defied expectations. We've been we've been long term investors in Microsoft actually um, since uh, since the early days of even owed income. So, uh, over a decade, um, invested in the company, not just in the global income portfolio. 
and, and it's amazing it shows that what can happen if a business that has a great competitive position in what it does lots of cash is willing to reinvest in itself and i think you know, not all businesses will be as extreme as microsoft <laughs> and we certainly didn't predict azure um and, and and the dominance that it would have but it does show good show what can happen when reinvestment happens in a, in a well capitalized uh well-organized company Let's talk about portfolio structure for a little bit. Uh, Microsoft, as you say, you know, is a dividend pay. Obviously, it's still a pretty low yielder. You're, as mentioned, focused on dividend growth rather than absolute yield. But in an environment, you know, where say bond rates are rising, you know, base rates are rising, you know, the dividend growth, obviously, the growth in that payout is crucial for for, for yourselves. But do you find do you find yourself thinking? We need a higher starting yield in some cases, perhaps. Do you ever consider that that starting yield being crucial, or is it is it all about you know the ability to to grow perhaps from a low level, but consistently and over years at a time? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, uh, I think that we don't we don't target a particular yield. I mean, to, to be part of the global income sector, one uh, has to yield more than the MSCI world, which is not not a particularly high benchmark to to to, to jump over. Uh, but uh, but but we do. It's a, it's a little little bit of a premium to the MSCI world. Uh, but you're right. The the is really the characteristics of the company that mean it can pay a dividend and a growing dividend. That's what we're we're more interested in. And then we are we are valuing those businesses over a long term stream of cash flows that they might generate. Uh, and some of that will be coming back as a dividend today. And when it comes to portfolio construction, you know we're really looking for um, uh, diversification. You know, certainly by sector, by business model, uh, and also that that tends to mean, um, given the va- any the valuation environment at any given time, we have a mixture of some companies like Microsoft, which yield you know maybe one 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 a bit, uh, to some companies that, that that yield more. And we've already talked about some of the consumer goods companies where they're yielding two to three uh, percent plus. And and we're happy, you know, we, we're happy with both of those ends of the spectrum. Where we don't really go to is the is the the higher yields, so where you've got very limited scope for growth in in, in those distributions uh, through time. That's not really what we're we're interested in under under our strategy. So, the the yield is important, and yes, in a rising rate, rate environment, arguably becomes more important. Um, and, and you know, all we do is invest in equities, so I don't have to worry about this so much. Um, uh, but clearly, if one is looking at a multi asset portfolio, you're looking at your asset allocation. Um, with yields with, with yields on uh, government debt and yields on cash being basically zero for such a long time, you had to go somewhere else if you wanted any return. Um, now you don't, and and so clearly cash and and other things like government bonds are are more attractive than they were, and and we have to we have to accept that. But we look at we look at valuation of equities in very much a, a, an absolute way. And uh, rather than relative to other other assets, and certainly we see the valuations that are available today. Whether you're looking at yields or whether you're looking at cash flow, free cash flow, discounted cash flow models, you know the valuations actually look 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 attractive. Um, and one one final point I'd make is that the why is it that I like investing in equities? Why do I have my savings in equities? Why am I an equity? <laughs> why am I an equity portfolio manager? Why do I do this as a job? And well, aside from it being absolutely fascinating, is that you know I get to go and meet companies around the world and ask them what they're doing, why they do it, who their customers are, how's it going? You know, and that is really, really, really interesting. But from a, from a sort of purely investment point of view, these companies, they operate in the real world. They're real assets that deal with things like inflation and, and all these other things that we worry about. 
you know, you look at equities as a, as a, as a, as an asset class, um, even through the inflationary times of the 1970s, 1980s, you actually generated real returns from equities um, through those times. And that's not something that can be said for, for all asset classes. So that's, that's, something, that's something I like about equities. There are downsides, of course, you have to put up with volatility, uh, but equities in general, but also these, 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 these dividend paying and these dividend growers in particular, where we're managing through our process a lot of fundamental risks that, that, that one might take. Uh, that's both from a business point of view, things like balance sheets, that sort of thing. But then also we manage valuation risk as well. What we've observed, and we've we've been we've just been through the five year anniversary, as as you uh, kindly mentioned at, at the start of the even a global income portfolio. What we've observed actually is man, by managing those risks, what we see in terms of the performance profile of the fund is, is a profile which has delivered good returns. But particularly when you take into account the, the risks that have been taken. So if you look at the things like uh, the drawdown of the fund, the volatility of the fund, the beta of the fund, whatever your chosen risk statistic is, they all look quite favourable compared to um, uh, the general market. And that, that's something that, that I quite like about our strategy, um, if you're managing risks as well as, as, well as um, uh, looking for returns. On a, on a purely uh, uh, statistical basis, when you're looking at companies and, and valuations, do you have certain levels at which you know you don't want to get involved? Whether that be you know dividend cover, whether it be uh, debt, whether it be uh, you know something else entirely, uh, can it be broken down? Can it be screened in that way in terms of how you start looking for companies to add to the portfolio, or is it all pretty much on a case by case basis? I mean, you could certainly screen them. We are relatively debt averse i think if you compare the debt on the portfolio to its benchmark the msci world we're, we're comfortably below um but it is worth remembering that different businesses have different tolerances so the amount of debt a unilever can take is completely different to the level say a, a recruiter or a more cyclical business can take um, now in terms of sort of what are the knockout uh, screening characteristics that, that we look at the the most important is return on invested capital it's are these businesses getting a good return on the investments that they're making over the long term? When we look at the cyclical, cyclical sectors, you mentioned recruiters there, you know, uh, there are some cyclical stocks trading on, on pretty high yields now, as, as tends to be the case in difficult times. Have you considered this year, you know, looking at uh, companies which, which have been, you know, bombed out a little bit, you know, as long as the uh, ROIC is still looking quite good. They might be actually trading quite a high yield, for example, but there might be some value there and there might be a, a business that has been under-recognized. Have you been able to take advantage of perceived opportunities like that this year? Or, or has it been a case that, you know, the kind of quality stock that you focus on is never going to be hurt as much as, as more cyclical parts of the market? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think um, uh, that, that there is to, to come back to this point there is always something to do even in our narrower subset of uh, you know, we, we define quality in a particular way um and there is always something to do so if you think about um uh, the additions to the portfolio more recently and i mentioned experian you know this is a company that that is is pretty uh, is pretty stable you know it, it does have some uh, economic sensitivity so it is somewhat uh, dependent on mortgage applications mortgage, mortgage applications have gone down recently so there is a little bit of a little bit of cyclicality there but actually the most of its most of its revenue is recurring because it sells its services in, as a sort of package to banks um uh for which they pay you know a fixed 
price and then there is some there is some transactional volume on top of that and i think that that's where it gets interesting for us because where where for whatever reason the market is worried about the company but we see the long-term picture as being pretty stable then that's an opportunity so i think you know experience is an example of that if i think back a little bit further in time um we invested in uh, a completely different sector lvmh um uh, to, towards the back end of last year and we've been building into the position as it, and as we've gone through this year and the, the stock has been relatively weak so this is the yeah, it's a, a luxury goods giant um the the you know, the, the outlook for that for over the sort of medium to long term is is very good but there are these worries that come along so the initial worry when we um invested last year was that the chinese communist party had made some some noises that were taken to mean increased taxations on 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 the wealthy that turned out not to be the case but you know uh, maybe that would have happened but did that dent the long-term demand profile for louis vuitton probably not you know did it <laughs> are people going to be buying more more or less money in five years time there's there's some good demand profile for these businesses so where you do have these these worries that are are shorter term in nature that that does create some interesting opportunities sometimes another sector which you have a little bit of exposure um is advertising you know omnicom i think in the past you've had publicist Mm -hmm. wpp as companies like that as well this seems like an interesting area to me insofar as so far these companies again looking at q3s things like that haven't been voicing much concern about the the environment, which is perhaps contrary to what you might might think at the moment. You know, we're seeing uh, other companies maybe more focused on on digital advertising. You know, sounding the alarm a little bit, but the the, the giants so far seem quite stable. Are, are you still comfortable with with that sector? Uh, do you think there is there's inevitably going to be a slowdown in in you know certainly in revenue growth things like that coming up, or, or do you think they can continue to hold the line? Yeah, I mean, we're, it is one of the more cyclical parts of the portfolio. We we prefer the, um, the 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 majority of the portfolio to be in relatively less economically sensitive businesses. So uh, that will always be the bedrock of the portfolio. But where 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 there are companies that can generate good good returns through the cycle, then there's there's a place for those at, at the right valuation. So yeah, we we do hold uh, on the common publicists. Um, so publicists is the French version. Um, and yeah, so far they have been reporting uh, relatively robust demand for their services. And I think that there is um, uh, an interesting uh, dynamic that's been at play over many, many years, which is that, that the, the, the rise of digital advertising and, and sort of omni-channel advertising, which is only more and more complicated. <laughs> this picture doesn't get less complicated through time. Um, and then you throw into you know, things like what's happening at Twitter, you know, how do companies navigate that? Yeah, the, the role of a of a, a, a of a valued uh, and a knowledgeable third party to help companies navigate this complex environment, uh, I think it, it remains and and increases through time. But there will be cyclicality in advertising spending. But yeah, but you're right that that hasn't been really been seen yet by these companies. Um, but I, I don't think that <laughs> don't think that means it's not going to happen. Um, so yeah, we we do we do monitor that. But they do the good good value. And they are another interesting example of companies that have had to evolve their business model. And there's a theme here. All businesses have to do this. You know, there is no business that can just say, this is the job done and uh, we'll just sit here and do what we're doing year in, year out. Um, you know, these companies have had to engage in digital advertising, figure out how they're going to have a value a value proposition for their customers. Uh, in the case of Publicis, they bought a company called Sapient, 
uh, in the world of digital consulting. They also bought a company called Epsilon in the world of digital sort of data and analysis. And, and so they, they, uh, they have a very well-stocked cupboard of digital capability uh, for, for helping their customers and, and not forgetting that the customers still, still want to advertise on TV, if you can imagine such an old-fashioned thing. Clearly, quality, you know, uh, as you can see from the portfolios, tends to lead to a focus on, on large caps, you know, a focus on cash flow often means, you know, looking at the very biggest companies. Small caps, you know, how, how readily can you find, you know, good cash flow, the kind of companies you look for in, in the small cap area, especially with a focus on quality nowadays? Are there still opportunities there for the, the small cap quality investor that, that you're taking advantage of? Yeah, well, I think you certainly can find small companies that that, that, that fit the bill. We tend to look at mid, mid and large caps. And, you know, we, we manage, if you look at the Evolved Income Fund, it's actually soft close because, um, you know, I think that, that when you get into those smaller companies, you know, liquidity can be a challenge. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's, you know, there's a better structure through which to do that investing. Uh, but certainly I think there are lots of small cap companies that that, that are out there that are cash currency that are really good. Dominance in their niche often, they, they often have a, uh, a niche and I think in the UK we do niche engineering quite well um, for example uh, but uh, but actually within our strategies you don't see that so much because um, these are open-ended funds so um, uh, so yeah I, I probably shouldn't comment too much more and uh, leave that to dedicated managers who are experts. All right I was trying to trying to sucker you in for some interest for uh, um, the the small cap listeners out there but uh, we'll save that for another day let's um let's turn back to the bigger companies then um we touched on right at the beginning when we were talking about staples, we touched on Unilever and its bid for Halion. Uh, the, the flip side of that uh, deal is, of course, GSK, who have now divested their, their consumer business. Uh, you hold uh, GSK, I think, in both funds, last I checked. That's right. Uh, again, that's another interesting large cap uh, stock to my mind in that, you know, there's potentially, you know, some good news coming through after maybe a period of in which you know its drug portfolio has struggled to to deliver a huge amount of winners uh, you may you may disagree with that assessment but but what's your sort of view on the the story for for GSK and its ability to you know produce those blockbuster drugs mm. uh, and yeah. then also if we come on to the the kind of litigation which has weighed over on the shares in in recent weeks and months as well yeah, should I, should I kick off with a sort of headline on the on the Halion thing, and then I know I know Chris has some thoughts on um, uh, on the pharma sector and uh, investment as well. So, um, but yeah, I think uh, I think the the spin off of Halion was a was a good thing because I think it's it brings focus to the um, to the pharmaceutical portfolio. Uh, I think that, um, and, and I know that Chris will come on to this, but the uh, level of uh, debt that um, uh, the GlaxoSmithKline had was a bit of a hindrance. So. Putting that into the more stable business that is Halion, which is a, a consumer consumer healthcare business, um, uh, does make sort of sense from a, from an operational strategic place, and I think it is now better placed than it has been historically to to move forward and move on with its uh, product development. But yeah, Chris, I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, um, firstly, just under the current uh, regime, they have rem- uh, dramatically reduced the number of trials that they're running. And that focus that you see not only in removing the consumer branded goods part of the business, but it, even within the drug development portfolio is very, very welcome. Now, the vaccines business has also done very well recently, particularly with Shingrix, which was the 
had a slight pause while everyone was getting their COVID vaccines. Um, but but overall, there are sort of green shoots in terms of the drug development, and it does look like Glaxo have really understood the focus that is needed to to have a good portfolio developing over time. And part of that really is down as well to not over distributing. And this comes back to the idea of dividend and dividend growth. Glaxo, for quite a while, in our opinion, were distributing perhaps a little bit too much, and potentially could have cut the dividend earlier. Now, this might seem unusual for an income fund to say we we really value the amount of reinvestment that Glaxo have done since they have cut the dividend. And I think that that is where you're seeing a lot of the brightness in their future come from. And on the, the point uh, of you know potential litigation, again, we've seen the share price fall a little bit uh, in the summer when this uh, story came out that was that had been there for a while, but no one had noticed, it seemed, or some shareholders hadn't noticed, and, and now there's some worries there. How do you, how do you sort of view that? that yeah, this, this is not, in, in many ways, not new news. Uh, as you say, I think it's been ongoing since about 2018. So, um, but suddenly the, the, the market seemed to wake up to it. Yeah, we've, we've, we've analysed the issue, and, and, cert- and certainly it's, well, it's very complicated to start with because um, the rights to Zantac have been sort of passed around from, Sort of pharma, pharmaceutical company to pharmaceutical company. So, Glaxo Smith Klein, we also hold Sanofi, who, who have held the, the who actually were the last uh, holders to to the rights to to Zantac, uh, and um, discovered the 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 issue, which is that um, it may have been um, contaminated with a small quantity of a potential carcinogen. So. You can see by all the caveats that I used in the previous sentence that there's a lot of uncertainty around whether there is actually an issue or not. Now, clearly, uh, the plaintiffs in in various uh, class action lawsuits which have been brought think there is. Um, From our reading of it, and uh, we have um, done some research around this, as you can imagine, um, there is is the potential for there to be a claim. The the value that is has been attributed to it, to, to it by the um, share price declines, which you've noted, uh, seem to be way out of line with the, any potential litigation cost. Ultimately, that's not to diminish that the, there might be a tail risk that there's a larger there's a larger liability there. But it, it seems that um, the 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 potential litigation is, is manageable in most scenarios to us. That's um. Uh move on and maybe conclude by looking at uh, Europe. You mentioned at the the starts from, from the Global Fund's perspective that over, over time you've been shifting a little bit more into Europe, perhaps away from the US. The European equity market, you know, it, it's always always unloved, much like the UK, I suppose, but from the UK investors' point of view, it, it's not somewhere they tend to dip uh, feet too often. Can you maybe say a little bit about the kind of company that you're finding interesting in Europe? We've, we've touched on obviously um, some of them, such as the the ad companies and LVMH. But but what kinds of businesses are you are you finding there? Yeah, I mean, I think Europe's a really interesting market because I think it kind of I mean it's a big market, obviously in in its totality. Um, but everyone kind of focuses on the sort of high growth high growth end of the US markets, and that's what gets everyone very excited. Um, and you know, and it, but there are some interesting businesses there, of course. But but actually, in Europe, you do have some really, really great businesses, and it's amazing what can happen uh, when you have a nice, steady, steadily growing business that again reinvests in its business and is willing to move its product portfolio on. So over the last five years uh, that we've been managing the Evolo Global Income Fund, the top 
contributor to our performance is a, a Dutch business to business media company called Volters Kluwer. And Volters Kluwer is like, it's, it's in the sweet spot of what we look for at Evenload. And, and actually, I was, I, I didn't know until we'd done the analysis, I was just looking at, at the numbers this morning, actually, that it was our top contributor. Um, uh, uh, but it's a business that we very much like because it does tick all those boxes. It's, it, it's great in its niche, it's cash generative, it's been willing to reinvest and, and, and invest in evolving its portfolio. So if you go back 20, 25 years, it's predominantly a print publisher of, uh, of information. Uh, and now it's a vast majority of its portfolio, well over 90% is digital and it's de delivering data, analytics and software to, to help um, help its customers manage their practices in various different industries. So it's got a business that deals with uh, governance, risk and compliance. So banks and that sort of thing, uh, legal business, uh, tax and accounting, uh, and also a healthcare business. So if you're a, a healthcare practitioner in a hospital, you might be using a, a software uh, package called up to date which gives the the, the latest um, uh, science on the various maladies that your patients might be walking into the hospital with and all of these things they they are um you know the relatively small cost compared to like the cost of running a hospital um but they but they can be really really uh important in in determining you know in the, in the healthcare um in the, in the healthcare example patient outcomes and that's what really matters to hospitals is getting patients in getting them sorted and getting them out again um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really uh, a great example of the sort of business that I think Europe does really well. Um, don't necessarily get the pulses racing, you know, when you're thinking about the kind of really kind of hot, really sexy end of technology. But actually, this is this is an app. They're applying the technology in domains with the, with deep domain expertise. And, that, and that's where really where they're kind of uh, competitive edge lies so uh, i do talk about Volta's clue quite a lot because it's a great example of what we're looking for in businesses but but it also shows you know it's not a fast grower it grows in the mid single digits but it grows in mid single single digits like a clock <laughs> and that can add up to some really nice things through time is that uh you know the the european exposure has been increasing you you look ahead to next year now we're, we're almost there um it seems horrifying to say but uh, yeah. it's the end of november as we record this do you anticipate you know european opportunities continuing to take up uh or to to account for more of a fund or, or or is it maybe a case of now that the us is us market has has struggled a bit this year that you're starting to to look back there um yeah. globally uh, sorry yeah. yeah go on yeah no no it's a, it, it's a good question and i think uh, we, we obviously don't know what's going to happen next year but um tentatively this this year, what we have been seeing is, I mean, we've already talked about Microsoft, but um, the, the technology sector more broadly, which is focused on the US uh, in terms of where the companies are listed. Uh, you know, that is where we've been seeing some selectively some better value opportunities. So from Microsoft, yes, but you know, Accenture as well, uh, which has come off reasonably heavily this year. Um, so yeah, I think that the, the is the pendulum started to swing the other way. We don't know whether it might get stuck or we'll continue on that on that path. Um, but but certainly, you know, it's not the, the US has been weak, but actually parts of the, the, the European market have been very weak as well. So there, there is still opportunity there. So we'll be selective and, and see what it means on a on a on a case by case basis. Yeah, but you were, you would expect us to make sort of gradual changes at the company by company level anyway. So we're not going to suddenly switch half the portfolio over to the US. Sure. Unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you never know. Never say never. Uh, but on uh, speaking of uh, uh, that kind of changes, one final point on uh, developing markets, which we haven't touched on uh, in terms of domicile, at least. That's still a very small part of the global income portfolio. You know, a lot of people like to talk up the opportunities in dividend stocks globally. For you, has it just been a question of not finding opportunities that are good enough to to bump out the kind of well-known or at least developed market names? Or are you still looking and still keen to to get more yeah. uh, developing exposure if you can? Yeah, we, yeah, we do look and um, uh, and we certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be averse to investing in emerging market listed companies um, should the right the right ones come along. I think that the fact is there are there are two kind of twin challenges. The first is, as you say, the, the, the incumbents that we have that are developed market listed, they do business in emerging markets. And Chris, Chris mentioned it earlier for the consumer goods sector and, uh, and other businesses like Relex. Um, but, you know, if you look at the underlying revenues of the portfolio, about 20% comes from Asia Pacific. So uh, you know, probably somewhere in the high single digits of that is from, from China. A bit hard to estimate, but, but at that sort of level. Um, so, yeah, we are getting exposure to those 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 geographies but through western listed um uh, we also we have a uh, uh, we have one asia pacific holding but it's, it's an australian listed business called sonic healthcare um uh, but yeah but what you get from that is that exposure but also with kind of western grade corporate governance and that's really important so we have looked at uh, other markets like india i mean the, the indian it outsourcing market is pretty interesting china clearly We've done some thematic work on on, on that and, and and other geographies as well. But the, the difficulty is that there are some pretty significant corporate governance challenges. Uh, and then when you're looking at Chinese listed businesses, you've got the, the, the geopolitics there or the, or the politics if you're looking at just the domestic economy, um, which uh, which is um, which is a challenge, I think. But but you know, do do we need to have those businesses? No, not not at the current time. Would we like to have them in time if it made sense? Absolutely. So we will keep on looking. Thank you for that and for uh, all your thoughts today. It's been a great discussion, but we have come to the end of our time now. So uh, I would like to say thank you to the listeners as well for uh, sticking with us and to Ben and to Chris for taking part. We'll see you next time on another IC Interviews podcast. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 